When I look at technology, I look at it as a culmination of things. Where you get real acceleration is when multiple technologies come together. You see a kind of a synergy there, right? And that's what I'm expecting because it seems like every other day there's a new technology out there that's going to be a factor. Welcome to Non-Zero. I'm your host, Aaron Kanata, and today I'm with Sandeep Pandya. He's the CEO of Everguard.ai. They promote advanced technologies for improving worker safety. We're going to get into that and a whole lot more. The conversation of AI is always a fun one because I'm not sure I, I really understand it. And when I'm ignorant, which is usually most of the time, uh, I tend to ask pretty good questions. How are you, Sandeep? Very nice, uh, Aaron. And thanks again for uh, bringing me on the show. I appreciate uh, being here and and talking to all your listeners. Well, this isn't the first time we've uh, had the honor, or I've had the honor, I should say, of chatting with you. The first time I was uh, around was with your previous company called Netdyne, Netrodyne, right? Correct, correct. I think that would probably be a good place to start, although I'd love to step back even a bit further um, and just get a bit about your your history, because I think your past is is pretty fascinating. And I think you've thought quite a lot about what some sort of counterfactual and and where you might be in life had even your parents not made it to, you know, the U.S. And so can can you give us a little bit of history about your your family and yourself? And, and, you know, we don't have to do the long version, but how a little bit to to get us to where we are today. Sure, sure. No, it's uh, it's been a great journey for for me and my family. You know, my dad, um, you know, we're from uh, India originally. I'm of Indian origin uh, and uh, East Indian origin. And, you know, my father came to the U.S. in 68 uh, to pursue his studies. You know, he was an engineer and, and for graduate work and, you know, like a lot of uh, folks his age back then from that part of the world. And, uh, you know, my mom, my, my brother and I settled uh, just a few years later in Chicago. And so I'm a Midwesterner. You know, I was two when I came and I love deep dish pizza and I suffer with all the other Chicago sports fans, uh, you know, whenever, <laughs> whenever we need to. But well, uh, I, I actually happen to be a hockey fan and you guys have done pretty well as of late. But I get that the, the <laughs> more popular or mainstream sports have been a, a tough go. A, a and, tough and, one lately. But uh, but no. It's, and so, you know, grew up there and, and obviously went to university at uh, engineering school at, at U of I, uh, Urbana and computer science. And I actually started my AI studies there and and then did a little B school at, at Northwestern. But, what got uh, you interested in AI? Yeah, you know, it's just, uh, it's always fascinated me that uh, the concept of taking uh, something that is uh, inanimate and a machine and delivering into it uh, something at least, you know, aspirationally speaking, is is human-like, uh, you know, in terms of form and function. People talk about uh, natural intelligence and, and things like that, where you're actually trying to get uh, human-like consciousness. Uh, that but would anyways, be AGI, it was all- artificial general intelligence. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly. Is that, that a discussion in most AI courses? When when you do study it, do you get into the philosophical? Do you talk about what consciousness is and what it what intelligence actually is? I mean, the, the study of intelligence itself. Yeah, very briefly. You know, uh, I worked at a place called the Beckman Institute when I was at U of I, and uh, you know, they had grand aspirations about, you know, really understanding the nature of consciousness and so forth. But, you know, candidly speaking, I think it was shooting for the stars at that point because the, the state of technology was still so immature as it relates to neural nets and other things, which today, you know, we can t- get into more, have really come a long way because the underlying hardware that enables that kind of software excellence is, is more mature today than it was back mm-hmm. then. And so things were quite primitive back then. And so, so a lot of these things were just kind of pie in the sky, um, 
And I uh, had a conversation with Dr. Izikevich at uh, yeah. Brain Brainworks, whatever it is yeah. that they're building sure. robot brains. Eugene and I and, think yeah, sure. Yeah, Qualcomm is one of the big investors who I think you guys are doing some work with. We can we can get into can can neural networks. It sounded like you you can separate those from the brain. Actually, we build neural networks without having a brain machine interface. I, I'm, I'm trying to tie this b- yeah. between I just watched Elon Musk give his introductory uh, little pitch for his BMI. And it was with pigs, right? He used a couple of different pigs. And yeah. does that get us closer? I have to assume if, if we can actually map brain activity, it gets us closer to creating a true neural, neural network. But I forget that it was like 10 to the 49th, whatever number it was that, yeah. that Dr. Zhukovich used. It blew me away. I don't think I'm, my, my mind is capable of actually um, wrapping its head around. Yeah, or, or there's too many around. zeros that you would wrap the earth, you know, uh, so many times. And that's why I think that AGI and, you know, brain machine interfaces are, you know, not science fiction. But, you know, the, you know if you think about uh, what can I do with the technology to affect the world today? And that's, mm-hmm. you know, kind of the spirit of my company and also my prior company is, you know, how can we use some of these advanced technologies to to reshape society today in a better way? I think some of these other technologies are really cool and interesting, but the runway to, you know, useful commercial uh, deployment, you know, is probably still years and years away. And Mm -hmm. it may be a worthy endeavor, but definitely kind of in the R&D kind of corner of an organization. But I think, you know, just with the state of technology today compared to when I was studying back, you know, in, in the late 80s and early 90s, it's really come a long way. And another industry that I was in for a long time, you know, I was at Qualcomm and Motorola for a long time. I've been in high tech almost 30 years. It's really the cell phone industry, the smartphone industry that has forced uh, the integration of so many different types of core technologies, whether it's video, GPS, graphics, meaning the GPUs, you know, the the graphics Mm -hmm. processing units, you know, comms, you know, whether it's Wi-Fi or cellular, all into smaller and smaller form factors that are more affordable that have enabled or unleashed so much processing power in what I would like to call or we call at the edge, meaning where the person is, where the activity is, so that you can bring really advanced artificial intelligence capabilities, deep learning, computer vision, whatever flavor you like, right to where things are happening. And, you know, 20 years ago, you needed big, powerful servers and mainframes and and spark stations and all that stuff to do Mm -hmm. even the simplest problem. Now in the palm of your hand or in the cab of a truck or near a construction worker or in a factory, you can bring pretty amazing technology right there. And that's kind of the spirit of Evergard. How important is having continuous internet to, to a lot of these issues that you're trying to solve? Because I see that, you know, it's, it's becoming ubiquitous just about everywhere you go. You see those maps when Verizon, you know, does their advertisings, everything's red, but you also know sometimes, I mean, I don't even get good cell service in my own home. So when, when you're talking about the edge, I want to, this is two different questions. Are we talking about an IOT kind of device, meaning a device that's on that specific item previously with Netrodyne, it was on trucks that you guys had a camera that was accessing the internet. I imagine, Um, do you have a different, system that you tap into than what I have access to through my cell phone. Meaning if, if, yeah. if the internet goes out on a trucking device that you're counting on for your safety, I guess I'm, I'm probably pushing it too far though. Cause I'm taking it to self-driving cars in that example. Yeah. And what you guys were doing wasn't, was getting us there. It was getting us close, but it really was more for increased safety. Yeah. So no, no. So, so you, you put your finger on a very interesting design point uh, as it relates to these advanced systems, especially when you get into 
you know, whether it's an autonomous vehicle or a, a camera monitor that is supposed to warn a driver about something, you know, passively, uh, maybe mm-hmm. not take control of the vehicle or in, a, in the Everguard case, you know, where, you know, we have built sensor nets, you know, of cameras and LIDAR and radar and advanced uh, sensors uh, that basically uh, wrap around the, the, the factory workers workspace where they possibly might get hurt. Um, the design point is that if they, if they're reliant on external connectivity to do their job and that's not guaranteed, then mm-hmm. you're exactly right that, you know, it's, it's not a reliable system and safety has a very, very high standard, you know, that the system has to basically be able to free run on its own, providing safety, even if it can't report information back. So we at Everguard, um, and even at my prior company, one of the things that you you handle being able to free run, you know, standalone, independent of external connectivity, is you do something that, you know, you design for being on the edge. It's called edge compute. And that's an investment in hardware. That's an investment in saying that I'm going to build a system that is at the point of, of operation, at the point of activity. It's going to cost me more, but I must guarantee that the system functions and protects the worker constantly. And if I report back up to provide some analytics or whatever, that's best effort, you know, and whether I'm going through the corporate land system like I would in a factory mm-hmm. or whether I'm going over LTE, like in a mobile truck situation or like in our construction site situation, that should never be in the critical path of providing that, you know, service that you need to provide. And in this case, safety, which is, you know, something that can't allow interruption. It's, the autonomous vehicles are the same thing, to your point. They have a lot of hardware built into the vehicle so that the vehicle can constantly be providing, I would say, safety first, which is driving the car safely, independent of any other kind of connectivity. I think what connectivity can do is it can allow you to access other data, et cetera. But there are a lot of systems out there that rely completely on cloud connectivity to run. And those systems, I would say, have kind of a flaw that if you lose that connectivity, the system doesn't function. So we we, we go the extra step of building at the edge and but that, so that's the nature yeah. of what it means to build at the edge exactly. is that you recognize these points of failure and you have what do they call them redundancies right in yeah. the plane or I mean I guess in any sort of system where you need to have multiple fail safes you build redundancies in so that the system can continue to operate whether or not your connectivity is constant exactly you know uptime reliability there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of terms and then the other thing you know candidly is it is the real-time nature of the service that you're providing. You know, so if I'm just a weather monitoring station or something, you know, I can probably have minutes of latency and it's probably okay. But when you're trying to prevent a factory worker uh, from, you know, potentially getting hit by a crane that's moving, you know, eight tons of steel, you know, down a, down an aisleway of a, of a steel plant like we are, mm-hmm. um, you know, our spec for our safety system is less than half a second between detection of the unsafe event, reasoning about it, and then alerting the worker and or the crane operator to watch out. And how does that danger Will Robinson moment happen? Is it just a red light flashes and it's and you're screaming at that individual, get out of the way, Johnson, you're about to get hit by a crane. That's a whole nother area of study in computer human interaction, you know, is uh, the best way to interact with, you know, workers who are busy doing something. And, and warning them in a way that they don't become numb uh, to uh, the, the feedback. So we have multiple uh, methods. You know, we have IoT wearables the, that are in wristwatch form factors or armband or on your hard hat. And they provide haptic feedback. 
They can provide, meaning buzzing, you know, they can provide an audible uh, alert. They can provide a visual LED alert. But then we also know that sometimes even with all of that, the person mm-hmm. may just be not paying attention or whatever. Uh, so we have environmental alerts that we place through the factory. We can actually put, you know, sirens and alarms in the machine. So whether it's a, a forklift or a crane, just like you use the word redundancy, we don't rely on any single point of alerting uh, when it comes to the safety of a worker. You know, we we build uh, for maximum uh, visibility and, and notification. And so that's designed into our system. We also alert uh, managers and others uh, through text mm-hmm. and emails for reporting. But, you know, if someone fell down, they may not be responding and you still need to get them help. So we have multiple ways of contacting people. And then ultimately we have an SOS panic button built into our wearable. So where a worker can, can alert uh, his, his, you know, coworkers if he needs to. It sounds like a complex system. I'm trying to put my finger or my yeah. thumb on what exactly the secret sauce that Everguard.ai is adding here. Are you guys creating all of the hardware from scratch? Is it the the technology that goes into the specific hardware that makes what you guys are, are doing so unique and, and forward thinking? Is it the software itself or or the nature of that that edge computing? I mean, uh, what, what are you guys actually yeah. um, adding here that isn't something it, or is it just the collection of all of these? It's just never been put together in a system and program the way that you guys have. And all of the technology has kind of been there. But you guys are creating a program to really take safety to the next level. Yeah, no, th- that's a that's a great question. And and it's a little bit of, of uh, a couple of things that you mentioned. You know, one thing as a young company that you realize is that, um, you know, and I've been in, in high tech for a long time around hardware and software and, and so forth is that if you if you want to build your own custom hardware, it's very risky. You know, mm. hardware has long design, uh, build, manufacturing uh, cycles. You can get into risky areas with uh, excess inventory, you know, forecasting it, uh, obsolescence. You may get uh, 99.99% of the things right in the hardware, but there might be a manufacturing defect that you only find out after you build 10,000 of them. You know, mm. those are the kinds of things that can really torpedo a, a young venture like ours. And so we're very careful about trying to use uh, generally available commercial grade uh, hardware components that are at scale. And also, you know, part of this is business strategy. You know, why do I need to go try to make a camera when the worldwide ecosystem of, of surveillance cameras and IP cameras is so great? And similarly, edge servers and, and some of this, you know, IoT wearables. There's just, there's just a ton of people uh, out there that do that. And so in that way, we have a multi-sourcing global kind of strategy of, of bringing those components in. And what we do is what you said is we integrate them in an end-to-end system, right? Along with this architectural innovation we have of being at the edge and bringing multiple sensors, right? So what we use is the term from the autonomous vehicle space called sensor fusion. You know, an autonomous vehicle won't just rely on ca- on cameras, though I think, you know, the folks at Tesla might, might say differently. But, you know, <laughs> most people believe that, you know, you might need multiple technologies to penetrate the harsh environment of a roadway, because you might have dust, snow, low light, dawn, dusk, you know, that kind of things. And, and it makes it hard to perceive. So in a factory, when you have a worker next to a, a blast furnace, you know, that's very dark and dusty. But then when you open the blast furnace door, it's 1800 centigrade, uh, centigrade uh, degrees in there, melting eight tons of, of scrap metal. It's brighter than the sun. And so the dynamic range of light from going from dark uh, to very bright, it saturates the camera sensors. And so what you need is you need LIDAR and you need other types of sensors that can penetrate all that because you never want to lose track of 
the worker and whether they're safe, right? So what we've done mm-hmm. is we've taken these, let's call them commodity hardware components. We've combined them in an architecture with sensor fusion and edge compute right there where the worker is. So we can constantly understand what's going on, contextualize. We're actually tied into the machinery as well. So we know machine state. Because, so it's know, not just a bunch of super sophisticated cameras positioned strategically around a warehouse or wherever you guys are operating. The devices at the, the human level on the, on the laborers exactly. are actually collecting and feeding data into the system, as, are the, as, as is the equipment and the machinery themselves. Exactly. And we're, you know, one of the other things that makes EverGuard different, and I think this you know, comes to technology strategies, when you look at a steel factory that's eight football fields big, Right. Uh, if if you were to just go in and say, oh, you know, I'll just throw cameras everywhere. OK, well, how many is that? Ah, about 10,000. Oh, OK. And what does it take to wire up 10,000 cameras? Oh, about a million dollars of fiber optic cable. OK. And then what are you going to do with all this? Well, I'm going to feed it back to a room filled with servers so I can try to process the video in real time. And then, of course, that proposal is DOA. Right. It's dead mm-hmm. on arrival because the plant manager will say, wait a second, my plant runs 24, 7, 365. I need to maximize utilization. And you want to shut down my plant so you can put a bunch of cameras in and stream video to another room and maybe you'll see something. No, we're not going to do that. So, however, what we did at EverGuard is we recognized that problem and we said, look, what we want to do is work with you and identify the riskiest spots in the plant. You know, just like a surgeon is looking for the tumor. Mm-hmm. We said, tell us where the highest rates of unsafe events occur, where the you know workman comp claims are generated from, et cetera. And let's build our advanced sensor fusion safety nets with edge compute and drop those in those areas, right? So we're selectively fixing, let's call it the areas of greatest risk. So from a CapEx perspective, our customers are really happy because for a minimal amount of investment, they're getting a high ROI on safety, right? And then what happens is you can now slowly expand the footprint as you build advocacy because, you know, look, I'll tell you between unions and also the mindset of a lot of folks in heavy industries, you know, they're cautious about technology and rightly so, Mm -hmm. you know, you can't just let everybody come in, especially a young company that hasn't been around that long and turn things upside down. You have to kind of prove yourself. And so we've, we've come in with this very kind of... I would think the unions would be your advocates though, no? I mean, isn't it their, I guess obviously not their sole responsibility, but one of the major rallying cries for unions is we're protecting workers. Absolutely. Yeah, they, they, they care for their workers a lot, but uh, there's always a certain amount of caution in anything that might require you know, change in the work environment. I can tell you, even at my old company, uh, workers don't like being on cameras. It's just one of those things. You know, it's a, it's a thing that you have to get over. And non-union shops, they're you know, when the when the organization and management have decided this is for the the general good, it, it just it just moves a little faster. And union shops are very respectful. We try to work with them and make them understand. But sometimes there's this anxiety, and when you can say to your point that, hey, look. We're here to monitor all the good working and things that need to be coached. But ultimately, mm-hmm. it's for the, the benefit of the workers and the team. And then, you know, then they start to come around. But the idea is to not look like you're just coming in and, and turning the whole, the whole plant upside down, that you're being surgical right. and, and, and intentional. Well, let's, uh, let's take it as a given that businesses care about their employees and want to minimize injury, death. We don't really think of workplace death much in this country anymore. But I mean, the reason we had a labor movement and unions to begin with was because it wasn't a pleasant thing to work in a coal mine or in yeah. a steel mill and these factors. And, and that was a not an uncommon thing in life. You really were putting your life on the line. There's yeah. still a lot of dangerous work going on. I don't want to 
you know, talk about how, how people don't care about people. But so other than reducing liability, reducing work, workplace comp claims, what are, what are some of the other ancillary benefits of having, because I mean, when you're retrofitting your entire operation with, and and collecting all of this data, I have to imagine there's a lot on the back end that Mm -hmm. over time you guys will be able to optimize or help shed light on for these companies. Have you, have you been a at this long enough to have, you know, a lot of this data, do you have case studies? Maybe we could even just talk about um, what this looks like once you guys are in operating, what are the benefits to these companies on the back end that, that might not be obvious. And I'm sure I missed some of the obvious ones already. So if you want to touch on those. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good question. And just, you know, to put some numbers around the the fatality piece, you know, just because that's where we started, it is a serious problem. Even in the U.S. alone, you know, OSHA data shows that, you know, over 5,000 workers die on the job uh, every year. And even when you look at, you know, and obviously the social cost of, of someone dying on the job to that person, their family, their community, their coworkers is immeasurable. Um, but if you look at even non-fatality uh, type injuries, right? You know, it's estimated over $60 billion, uh, you know, a year of, of, of economic value uh, are impacted as a result of, you know, severe injuries, minor injuries, even near misses, you know, mm-hmm. and, and other operational glitches. And so to the second part of your question, which is, you know, as we collect data that might have safety as a start, but maybe an operational benefit, you know, as, as, as a bonus or as, as a byproduct, we're absolutely looking at that. You know, I can tell you that once you have a sense uh, with great precision of where workers are, where vehicles are, where machinery like cranes and things are moving, um, you start to get utilization data, right? And without being specific, because, you know, we have NDAs with our clients and respectful, I can tell you in, in broad terms that you start to, you start to understand um, how flow through a factory uh, is and that's the kind of data that a COO, you know, a chief operating officer of a plant or plant manager can use to not only improve safety, but also streamline the operation. You know, uh, there are things where, um, you know, for instance, uh, steel plants have something called a coil yard, you know, depending mm-hmm. on the type of plant. And it's these large metal rolls of steel, uh, rolled steel that are sitting out, uh, you know, two tons uh, of, of coils uh, per, you know, per coil and, and a whole yard of them that are, you know, like a football field large. And you have these large forklifts that are moving that stuff around, but you also have workers moving around in that area. And so you, you definitely have potential uh, collision uh, situations. And we have some mm-hmm. anti-collision technology that we're actually trialing with the U.S. partners, one of the most notable steel uh, players in the U.S., and not only can we provide the proximity warnings when they get close to each other because the, the, the worker can't see the, the, the forklift coming around the corner because the, the steel coils are higher than he is. Mm. Uh, but we, we actually warn them in real time, but we collect all that data and look for hotspots of, of, of this type of interaction on the coil yard. And now what they can do is they can remap the flow and it not only improves safety, but what it can do is actually just streamline the flow of goods uh, in their coil yard. And so that's, that's one example. Another one I'll tell you is that in the construction domain, you know, obviously safety is important, but a lot of the times the site manager just wants to know where his trades are. You know, are they all up on the 12th floor like they ought to be, you know? And by the way, who is on the 12th floor? Because our IoT technology allows us to personally identify the individual, but also what their role is. Are they a mason? You know, are they a welder? You know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And just from a site operations perspective, having that kind of visibility at your fingertips is, is hugely beneficial to these guys. Is there usually somebody on the back end who's monitoring this 
in real time? Is it something that you guys are, are, is it mostly self-contained or maybe not self-contained is the right word, but does it kind of just manage itself and, and all of these warnings and things are happening through the, the, the AI or, or are we talking about having somebody, an, an employee um, on the ground who, who actually is observing the data, making decisions in real time about how to, how to, Obviously, if it's just communication with what was the term you used, by the way, that that um, for for field operators or for construction workers, yeah, there was, the, the, there was a the, term you used that I'd never heard before. You mean using uh, wanting to know where the the trades are? The, the yeah, the trades are. Yeah. That, that's just synonymous with your laborers. With, yeah, the with laborers, the, the masons, the welders, you know, the electricians, things like that. And um, and uh, so if and John's not in the right place, you can send a, a ping saying, "Hey, John, we're, exactly. we're actually working on this today." Um, yeah. And, and it might be that, you know, the site manager is busy. So to answer your question, you know, you want the system to be as autonomous as possible. And, mm. you know, with the with the right set of use cases and rules embedded as features, you know, the site manager doesn't have to worry about too much. Like if so, like we have uh, we actually have uh, a feature called, you know, geofencing. It's virtual or electronic fencing where we can actually mark out places on the construction site or the factory floor where people, you know, should be or should not be based on, you know, their, their wearable profile. And we're able to track people's movements through these areas down to the centimeter. And uh, we can actually tell. That's hey, done you know, at the local level, right? With, with your hardware specifically, exactly. not some sort of GPS satellite. No, that's, no, exactly. That's, it's all, it's all designed our to work cars. in our own sensor mesh network. Exactly. We're not, I mean, we could use GPS as another enabling technology, but we don't. It's all very local. And, I assume uh, it wouldn't be as accurate. Yeah, yeah, GPS doesn't have the resolution of centimeters, you know, for what we want to do. And in a lot of cases, you know, you don't need that all the time because if a, if a person steps into a zone that they shouldn't, just the fact that they stepped into it is enough and we, we send them a buzz and then you have a recording and a video and whatnot. Um, so, you know, the system should be as autonomous as possible. That said, uh, the, the user portal, you know, the management dashboard gives you all of the data by worker, by team. And, you know, maybe the site manager at the end of the day finally sits down and is trying to figure out what's going on. And then he goes, hey, why are these guys over here? But the good thing is these alerts also come in. And so if you wanted to react, he or she wanted to react in real time. You know, they could. And so that's really the way you want to design the system. We like to think of it as um, you have to think with the, with the manager's mindset. There's mm -hmm. times where he only has five minutes between things, you know, and, and he'll take a quick look, you know, on the dashboard. Um, or it's an emergency. He's in a meeting and needs to be pulled out right away. Watch out. You know, I need to go. Someone fell down. We need to go help that person. Or there was a collision. Mm -hmm. And the third one is the weekly staff meeting, the monthly staff meeting. Let's look for coachable incidents. Let's look for operations glitches. Let's talk to the team, maybe reward some people for great work, you know. And, and so you have to design your information flow for the modes in which people can consume uh, the information who are non-technical and don't care a lick about your system, but just want to do a better job. Right. And that's really mm -hmm. why the system exists. And so we design with that philosophy. Is there any um, push for this on the demand side? Meaning if, if say you're working with somebody who's hiring a contractor, construction worker, when I go to the grocery store, you know, I, I don't know how much value there is to this really, but I can see that a, a food might be certified organic, right? If I know that there are benefits to working with a company that has these particular, if there was some sort of standardization mm -hmm. of safety requirements yeah. that went above what was legally required, is, is this visible to, you know, the, the people making decisions and a, would it save them money? Would it be something they would want? Yeah. Obviously you want to work with a company who's, you know, has high safety standards because you care about people. Again, it's, it's weird to put that caveat on any, everything, but the no. reality is a lot of decisions in the business world are simply made 
based on bottom line. What, how quickly can we get this done? How, you know, what, what's the likelihood it's going to come in on budget? What are the unforeseen events? I mean, when you, when you're, you know, weighing risks, these are the things you think about. Are we saying, Hey, we're, we're going to be uh, on budget more often because we're, we're going to have fewer of these unforeseen events. We're going to um, run more, you know, wh- whatever it is. Yeah. Is this a pitch that, that companies who are running these kinds of operations and are utilizing your kinds of your, your service, can they actually hold this out as a selling point? Yeah. Um, so that's, that's an awesome question. And I think there's two different ways to think about that question and why it's, why it's uh, relevant. You know, down at the worker level, it's probably not a surprise to say that a lot of young people, you know, that uh, hopefully will be attracted to these heavy industries, you know, they probably maybe don't wake up in the morning thinking, oh, yeah, you know, I want to go work in a, in a plant, you know, or a factory. And by the way, I hear that it's a tough job and mm-hmm. it might even be unsafe because I heard about, you know, someone's, you know, dad that, that, that got killed at that plant years ago or whatever. And, and you know, and so... Recruiting and retention in these industries is always a challenge. You know, in the fleet industry, you know, uh, turnover was more than 100%. Imagine going to, uh, you know, 90% to 100%. Imagine working in a place where almost everybody you know is going to be gone, you know, by the end of the year. And there's going to be new people. And the challenge with that is they may be less trained. The service levels for the company go down. You know, uh, maybe they're younger and, 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 and you know, not, not terribly excited about it. So same thing with these, these heavy industries. So what you want to do is you want to market to younger people, you know, the next mm-hmm. generation of workers that, hey, we're really advanced, we're cutting edge, we're using AI, we're using all this stuff. And, and that's exciting to make your workplace safer and more efficient. So I think it's a good recruiting and retention tool. On the other side, right, the, the business side, every major company uh, has a client list. And those clients are also major companies. And they are quite rigorous about scorecarding for safety as well as other things. And they will before giving out a bid. And I know of one case, I can't mention names, where a major auto worker actually through their own scorecard walkthrough of a steel provider's plant, noticed that some guardrails were not in place after you know someone had gone in there to do some servicing and then you know had left and he just forgot to put the guardrail back. Uh, they lost uh, the bid for that year uh, because they got a ding on the scorecard. And, uh, and I mean, if that doesn't hit your bottom line, I don't, I don't know what is. So I think for, uh, our hope is that our Everguard brand, Everguard.ai brand can be a way to reassure both potential clients and potential workers that that operation is running 21st century in terms of safety and, and operational flow. And that's really our hope. So the benefits are myriad. I mean, it sounds like this can touch a lot of different spaces. Um, I I imagine we we touched on the difficulties of or or maybe some of the objections that you guys would receive. Obviously, leadership can 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 implement these. But if it's going to be at the detriment of their work, if if there's really an outcry against it because they don't want to be be watched, the the, the benefits have to be made visible to the workers. They have to see how it's also going to keep them safer, um, which is that, that sounds like marketing and PR, which you guys will easily overcome just because I know you. And I know <laughs> no, but, but, but yeah, no, culture, culture change is important. Yeah. Yeah, it is. When you think about your role here, kind of want to take this back to a personal level because I'm interested. Yeah. You're an engineer by trade. You understand AI. Do, do you get to get in the mud? I mean, is, is, yeah. is part of your job actually being involved in dealing with issues with the software and the hardware dealing with, or are you uh, ha- have you taken on more of a role of having to be the fearless leader and, and really managerial 100% of the way? No. Yeah. Th- thanks for that question. You know, I worked at big companies for, you know, uh, most of my career, more than 20 years. And, 
you know, you were, and I've, I've been privileged to work at uh, companies that were leading technology companies and that really valued engineering and, and cutting edge tech. So I was exposed to it. But I tell you, uh, Aaron, in the last, uh, since 2015, being in startups where uh, everybody has three or four jobs at least, and even for me on the business side as a general manager and, and C-level person, I've always had a chance to work closely with our computer vision engineers, our AI engineers, because it's just fun. You know, it takes me way back to when I was in grad school and working on this stuff, you know, back in the day. And, and I've just had uh, uh, so much fun learning about the state of the technology, what it can do, and to the extent possible, uh, trying to provide some guidance. Uh, well, if our um, audience could see you smiling, I think you wouldn't <laughs> even have had to give an answer. It was very clear when yeah. you started down this path that no, I tell you, you, you love what you do and you get to do it. Exactly. I agree that the startup space is really exciting one to be in because you do get to touch so many different aspects as a leader. I'm, I'm curious from a cultural standpoint, my, my mother's Jewish and I always felt there was a yeah. similarity between Indian and yeah. Jewish cultures in the sense, you know, I, I don't know if you felt any pressure from your parents. Uh, I, I think your, your uh, parents are absolute role models of yours. And I'd love to discuss that yeah. uh, because it's a big part of, of, of who we ultimately become. A lot of times the, the decision in the question is, are you going to be an engineer or a doctor? And I think in, in you know, <laughs> yes. Jewish culture, you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer. I yeah. don't know that engineers is as uh, common. Was that an experience you had or, or, or was the, the move to the U S was this some, was there something about your parents that was inherently enterprising, you know, because being an entrepreneur is, is a, it's a specific type of sickness that we have <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah, no, it's that, true. that drives you to do what you do. And sometimes it's not always it's a beneficial condition. to your health or yeah. to your you know family or all of this, but it's, it's definitely something that the world benefits from that. We have people that are doing, you know, the kind of work that you are, but did you ever feel anything from a cultural standpoint? Yeah. Was this a, and were you the oddball or the black sheep? No, you know, I come from, I come from a family of engineers. So my dad and uh, his two brothers were engineers. Oddly enough, uh, my, my, my grandfather, you know, my dad's father was a school teacher. You know, he was part of India's freedom movement and he worked with underprivileged people in his area. He was part of Mahatma Gandhi's time. In fact, he received one of India's highest uh, honors for his uh, freedom fighting and public service. So there's always been a service element as well uh, in our, in our family. But we come from a family of engineers. My brother also is an engineer as, as I am. But interestingly enough, and I think you saw it in my smile a little while ago, but um, I got onto computers very early, you know, so growing up back then in the 70s and early 80s, computers were just coming around. I still remember seeing the first TRS-80 in my high school uh, computer lab. And, and right next to it was the punch card machine that we were using for grades because I used to work in the office. Uh, work. So, I mean, I had quite a contrast. <laughs> And I was just, I was fascinated. Uh, a friend on my block got the first IBM PC with the old 8088 processor and the green monochrome screen. So I was, I was hooked. It was a, a labor of love ever since then. And uh, they didn't need to push me at all. So it just worked out that way. What do you think about, I, I don't know if this is, is something that you've, you've heard, but there's an argument that's often presented by people like Peter Thiel and like Robert Gordon. And they talk about, it's hard not to look at Silicon Valley and it's hard not to look at screens and, and and think about artificial intelligence and everything we hear this narrative is you know artificial intelligence and automation and all these things are going to make us so much more productive and peter thiel is out there saying i, I think one of his famous quotes quotes is uh technology promised us flying cars and we got 150 characters but if you dig deeper he's a very thoughtful person and you know he talks about how the 
productivity growth just we haven't seen it in a way that we expected we would. And in the early age of the computer, we saw a bump. But more recently, it's not bearing out that way. I'm curious, are, are we in some sort of middle ground? Hey, he could be completely wrong. I don't think you and I are going to solve this this problem yeah. on this podcast. But is, is that something that you think about at all uh, as far as where artificial intelligence is right now and, and, and where it could take us? Because I think a lot of people do feel left out from mm-hmm. a lot of the explosion of technology outside of screens that you might look around on. It, it looks a lot like the 1970s. Really, yeah. I mean, if you take the screens out of any given room, that's another Peter Thiel argument in line. Yeah. Just take the screens away. What, what are you looking at that tells you it's not 1971? Right. So yeah. what, do, what are your thoughts there? I don't, I, yeah. yeah, it's a brilliant question. And I think it depends on the arc uh, that you use uh, to measure progress. And I'll give you I'll give you an example because we've had family discussions around the dinner table that are not too different. Uh, and my dad, you know, being from he was born in 1940, you know, uh, college in the 60s and, and came to work and all of that. But he he reminds me that the, the gauge of progress uh, kind of depends on your perspective. When he thinks about the village that he grew up in and from to walk from one village to the other would take a half a day. Right. And people just did it. It's all they knew yeah. for, for decades. And then there was a revolution. It was called a bus, a bus <laughs> shoe up. And now, wow, you can get there in 20 minutes. That's incredible. And the bus still only comes like once a day, but it was, it was a paradigm shift. Right. right. And so, you know, Nobody would look at that and talk about advanced technology. So I think when you talk about AI, and for me personally, you know, doing it back in the in the late 80s, early 90s, and seeing, you know, I was working on machine learning and reasoning using, you know, rules-based approaches for those listeners that know what that is. And it was very different from neural nets. Neural nets are kind of the, the talk of the day, but it was quite primitive, you know, even just to try and develop a system that could do basic things. The systems were what we called brittle. You know, you had expert systems and things back then that as long as you tried to codify every single thing that you think, uh, you know, like myosin, the system that was supposed to diagnose uh, meningitis and things like that, as long as you tried to codify in rules everything that you think could be a possible diagnosis, the system might give you a diagnosis. But it it was brittle because if you went outside the the domain knowledge that was put into it, it falls off a cliff, right? Right. Um, mm. But as long as you stay within it, it's great. Now, what's interesting is about deep learning and the modern state of, of computer uh, vision and, and just AI. I believe, in my humble opinion, it's still brittle. But the range of domain uh, of knowledge that you can put into a, a deep learning model by showing it a picture of a bunch of birds and cats and dogs is that compared to humans, right? Like, let's say you're looking at spots on a lung in an X-ray. The, the domain expertise of the system today is so broad and so good that you get superhuman-like capability of diagnosing these, these spots on lungs, you know, even better than a trained professional. Mm-hmm. But the problem is if you go outside of that domain, you still fall off a cliff. And so one of the biggest problems with deep learning is I need to get more data. I need to get more data because you don't want to keep falling off a cliff. And the real world has lots of things that you haven't seen before. And right. so I think, you know, when you look at uh, AI and deep learning as a tool for society, There's lots of things that as the world becomes more connected and more data gets created. I mean, look, the whole world is virtual now, right? It's a natural breeding ground for deep learning, AI, big data applications. It's just like never before, right? It's paradigm shift. And yet there will be limitations because it'll only be as good as the data that you feed it. But I believe we've now just entered an exponential domain in terms of how much data is going to be online. Even our conversations, as creepy as that may sound. Everything's going digital. 
right? right. Uh, what we do, what we see, et cetera. And we're able to index more and more. We just are finally getting audio that's being indexed. I think everything that's thrown up on Google Play is automatically transcribed. And then all of a sudden that's searchable in the same way that they've indexed and, and made searchable. I don't know how many millions or billions of books. And Exactly. So, I mean, how is that not like the invention of the transistor? How is that not like the introduction of the light bulb? As, I guess as because milestone. as people got a light bulb, they they plugged it in. You know, they had electricity coming to their home. And I think the data, it's, it's, it's maybe on the margins right now. It's not as clear, maybe until they get something like a cancer diagnosis. And then hopefully the, you know, the data is allowing us to laser treat but, um, cancers but, and things like that. But, but I would, I would, anyhow, I would, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. I would suggest that the power of the light bulb is... Uh, and and the the enabler for society is not that you could plug a light bulb into a wire and get light. It's what people can do with the light, right? They can read books where they couldn't right. before. Kids could become the next doctor or engineer or scientist. Or you could build something twenty four hours a day or you know whatever. And and I think AI is like that. AI is shining a light. Uh, on people and on problems in ways that it's hard to completely forecast, just like with my dad's village example of right. how progress is made. And, and I think that's that's we're going to see that in the next decade for sure. I think we've just got a moment left, but I, I, I love this thought experiment. And, and I really like the conversations that you would be having, the, the, this thought about the conversations you would be having with either your dad, other people in your space. What when you when you are together with with people that you consider to be on the cutting edge, what are the sorts of conversations you're having? What are what are the questions that you tend to ask either others or or get asked to you often that if if we could find an answer to, you think would just blow the lid off? I mean, would just be an earth shattering kind of change to the world. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, uh, that's a powerful question. And I don't know that I, I have any one uh, profound answer to that. But I think when I look at technology, I look at it as a culmination of things where you get real acceleration, you know, from a technology society interaction is when multiple technologies come together. So for instance, AI was kind of in hibernation for a long time. But then when processing power from like GPUs that were really used for uh, graphics and video gaming, uh, became enabled or for doing things like rendering um, UIs on smartphones, when that other dynamic actually made processing power easier and cheaper for AI computing, you see uh, kind of a synergy there, right? And there are going to be multiples of those things. So whether it's bioinformatics, genetics research, AI for you know solving problems in factories, 5G, it's the culmination of these things that where you get a byproduct that is greater than anything anyone envisioned. And that's what I'm expecting mm -hmm. because it seems like every other day there's a new technology out there that's going to be a factor. It gets me excited. I'm, I'm going to let you go, I promise. One more question. What role do you see the government having going forward? Because I feel like we don't have any political will toward any, any sort of like wartime effort for solving great problems. I think the last great thing the government did in the science space was, was sequence the genome in the U S we don't have a large Halderon collider or Hadron, whatever in, in the yeah. States. Um, and, and the stomach for risk seems to be much higher on the government side. You mentioned earlier, all these things that go into the cell phone. I don't think you could point to one of them that wasn't 
initially funded by government grants and probably were part of some sort of wartime effort, you know, from GPS to touch screen to, you know, you name it in your phone. It's, you know, the, the, the private, uh, um, markets, the free markets put that together in the form of your iPhone and do a really good job at that. But is, are are we missing something in the form of more government, um, you you know, know, in, not intervention, but what I don't know what the word I'm looking enablement, for. Enablement, maybe. Is enablement, right. yeah. yeah. I think the government's job, you know, um, the best that they can do, and I'll tell you why in a second, is to enable and support. Mm. I don't know that there'll be a driver, you know. So NASA, you know, wanting to go to the moon with JFK saying, let's go there. And then they spend a decade and billions of dollars. And, and they took a decade to get there. I think things are moving so fast now that the inertia, like it or not, that government mm. just naturally has it's just too slow. It can't keep up. And so by the time there's a great idea or a great thing to do, let's say global warming, you know, or global uh, climate change, for lack of a better term, sorry. That's something that I think private industry, there's an incentive if the incentives are aligned, will go after that way harder, way faster without waiting for anything. International boundaries are crossed, everything, because people want to be the first to figure out, you know, the next big problem. And governments, despite their best efforts or lack of I think they just move too slow. And so the best thing they can do is be a resource for providing the policies and the support so that the world at large can go solve these problems, wherever those people are, wherever those corporations are, wherever those organizations are. I hope you're right. I mean, I really, I I do think one of the issues we have is, is just one of loss of belief in government's ability to, to accomplish anything. And that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think when, when people yeah. believe that, and then even the, the people in government tell you that government doesn't work, you know, that you're, you're left thinking, okay, well, obviously government doesn't work. We can't get anything done. Yeah. But I do, I do think one of the, the, the struggles is in the venture space. And when you're looking at funding, yeah. you know, you're lucky if when you do uh, get funding, if they look at a four year window saying, hey, if we can get, you know, positive ROI or, or, or this to happen within four years, that's a long time in the VC world and oh, in, the, yeah. in the startup world. It's, it's like an eternity. But in, in, in reality, innovation happens, you know, sometimes there, it's just a, an explosion of innovation, but a lot of things take time. And so that's where I think there could be more stomach for it. And, you know, there could be more that we could do on a policy uh, place. But that's not my background. And yeah, I really the, the purpose for the show is actually to bring on and highlight the companies who are operating with that mentality with, you know, we, we're actually out there to, to figure out and solve the big problems. Um, and I, I, I love what you guys are doing. So I'll let you have the last word and then we'll give out the uh, where people can find out about you. And we'll throw that all in the show notes, too. No, no worries. And thank you again for having me on. And, and I agree. I, you know, look, as a young company, you uh, you take help wherever you can get. And, and yeah. if I could work with government agencies to accelerate our mission of making workers safer and, and know that I could do that faster than some other venue by working with, let's say, private venture and so forth. Absolutely. I'd be all over it. There'd be no biases. And uh, and so I think that is an opportunity for government to work closely with the venture world and, and figure out how to solve some of these bigger problems. But, yeah, at Evergard, yeah, our goal is really just to to do anything we can to try and make workers safer around the world. Well, I'm excited about it. I'd love to follow this along, have you back on, you know, when there's more to report on. And Everguard.ai is obviously where people can go. Anything else you want to shout out about uh, how to how to find out about you? or No, we know we're, we're, we're located in Southern California here in, in Irvine. That's where we're headquartered. But yeah, go to our website, Everguard.ai. And, and if you want to reach That's out. That's where I grew up, us. actually. Where, right? Whereabouts in Irvine are you? Uh, you know, uh, right near Spectrum Center. So uh, Okay, not, I was yeah. right off of... Uh, 
Irvine, uh, Irvine Center Drive and Yale is actually where my parents still yeah, live. Near the UCI uh, So campus. just down the road, I know the spectrum. Well, it's, it's, it's exploded. When I moved there in the early 90s, it was 75,000 people. Now I think it's 300,000 and it's really a, a city. It's a forward looking city. It's, yeah. it's really an interesting place. Really well planned. Yep. Anyhow, I really appreciate it, Sandeep. I'll look forward to our next conversation and thank you so much for taking the time. All right. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers.